Welcome to the Investors Chronicle Extraction Podcast. My name is Alex Hamer. I'm here at the Gemfields and Fabergé offices in London's Victoria with a range of stones in front of me and sitting across from Gemfields Group Chief Executive, Sean Gilbertson. Welcome, Sean. The idea is to have a look at some, some rocks and talk about the company, which is soon to return to the London Stock Exchange. So, Sean, we've got several emeralds in front of us and you're holding one. Can you tell me about that stone and why you like it? Well, first and foremost, Alex, it's a pleasure and a privilege to be speaking with you. Uh, Gem Fields Group Limited will be listing on the AIM division of the London Stock Exchange on Friday, the 14th of February 2020, which, of course, is Valentine's Day. Our ticker will be GEM or GEM, and therefore it is technically possible to buy some GEM on Valentine's Day. Very hence, cute. Hence, hence our choice of the day. And to tell you a little bit more about the, the GEMs that are in front of us here this morning, we are looking at the natural form of emerald crystals in the manner in which they come out of the ground from the Kardium Emerald Mine in northern Zambia, in which Gemfields has a 75% equity interest, and we're obviously also the operators of the mine. The remaining 25% is owned by the government of the Republic of Zambia, who are also represented uh, on the board of the company. The emeralds come out in a hexagonal shape, and the process by which they are formed is not entirely different to the salt crystals that you might have grown on your parents' windowsills when you were at school. Sure. Essentially, the right types of liquids, the right solutions, the right temperatures and pressures, if all of those things come together in the right way, then the conditions are conducive to, to beautiful crystal growth. The other thing that's remarkable about these crystals is that they are somewhere between 500 and 550 million years old. So they were formed more or less at the same time as the first multicellular organisms turned up in our oceans. And there is a, a well-known geologist who, in one of his publications, linked those two events cosmologically, in other words, the arrival of the first multicellular animals and the, the creation of these crystals. They do very much look like uh, kryptonite. In fact, they are the, uh, the closest thing that we do have to kryptonite on planet Earth. And the, the emeralds, in the course of the last 10 years, our industry has changed a lot, but we have also seen emeralds on a per carat basis surpass at world record prices, the price of white diamonds or colorless diamonds, which is pretty remarkable. So to put that into context, the uh, world record price per carat for white diamonds is about $245,000 per carat, and the price for emeralds is about $250,000 per carat, and staggeringly, the world record price for a ruby uh, is now 1.2-1.25 million US dollars per carat, which is just, if you think about it, that's $6 million per gram. It's quite staggering. Those are world record prices, and so one cannot always think of those sorts of numbers. Uh, The wonderful thing about the gemstone whether they're emeralds or rubies, is that they come in literally hundreds of thousands of different price points. An emerald is not an emerald is not an emerald, and the same thing also applies to to rubies. 
I think the other key thing that your listeners might enjoy appreciating is the fact that no two colored gemstones are the same. And uh, whilst diamonds are wonderful products, they've been with us for many years and they will hopefully be with us for hundreds more. If you get two identical diamonds in a pair of earrings, it's extremely difficult for somebody to tell the two apart because they are so standardized and because of the crystal structure. However, when it comes to colored gemstones, specifically emeralds, rubies, and sapphires, no two are the same. Every single one of them is genuinely unique. And even if you bought from any type of jeweler a pair of supposedly identical emerald earrings, even a lay person, if they spent a little bit of time looking at the two and studying them carefully, would be able to tell them apart. And I think that's a great uh, expression of uh, individuality for people and one of the reasons why colored gemstones are enjoying such a, uh, a rise in popularity. Sure. Um, and we've also got some, some rubies here that have been, you've got a rough and a cut and polished a cut and polished yes. ruby yeah obviously a jewelry expert here um <laughs> so people know how a diamond is mined gets sorted bought and gets sent to a you know diamond tear eventually and then cut and polished is that yes. is it the same thing for for rubies is that it, it is, is a that very, how it works? very similar process indeed and interestingly, Gemfields as a group does not itself do any cutting and polishing. We did embark on that journey in 2008 and 2009. Uh, it was The idea was a failure. I have to say at the time that uh, it was my bright idea, so um, that, that failure rests squarely on my head and shoulders. And we actually set up a cutting and polishing factory in Jaipur in India with a super team, all the latest equipment, but we found very quickly that the idea of value addition by cutting and polishing uh, does not work in practice in quite the way that everybody seems to think it will on paper. And the reasons were essentially threefold. Number one, we found that the margins were much lower than we'd anticipated. Number two, the losses in weight that one has to endure going from the rough to the cut and polished is pretty remarkable. So on average, for Zambian emeralds, the weight loss in going from rough to cut and polished is 75%. So you lose 75% by weight. So your yield is basically 25%. By contrast, in rubies, if you get a very good ruby, your yield might be 40 or 50%. That means that the price per carat has to go up dramatically in the cut and polished form just to make sure that you've covered the cost of the original rough material. And people often just compare the price per carat of the rough with the price per carat of the cut and polished gemstone and go, oh, well, look, wow, the cut and polished is much more expensive. We should be doing that. The other problem with the cutting and polishing business in our experience was that when you sell the rough gemstones, you get paid into your bank account before you make delivery of your rough gemstones. That's a good business to be in. By contrast, in the cut and polish gemstone business, uh, most of your customers are going to want to have credit terms. So you have to provide the gems to them on consignment and they're going to pay you in 90 days, 180 days. And then you ultimately end up calling a lot of the customers and they want another 60 days before they pay you. And of course, the other thing that's very different is the customer universe. When you sell the rough, you're dealing with a customer universe of maybe 50 to 60 companies. Whereas 
when you're selling the cut and polished goods, you may be dealing with thousands of different customers, which is logistically that much more tricky. And therefore, we went back only to selling rough gemstones, but making sure that in-country, whether it's Zambia or Mozambique, we do the grading, the sorting, and the setting up of the various lots that we take to our auctions very, very carefully to add, uh, to add maximum value. And more broadly, I mean, London investors will be familiar with Gemfields, some of their operational performance up until around 2017, when former Pallinghurst um, bought out the rest of Gemfields um, and it effectively became part of the Pallinghurst group uh, on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange. I think the the pitch you were making to, to third-party investors at the time was that operationally you could do a better job, part of the pitch. And looking at the the results of the last two years i mean do you do you think you you achieved that well let me let me take a step back and just look at uh, uh, what transpired in the 2017 watershed uh, developments for a moment and i think uh, what transpired in 2017 is widely misunderstood in the market and certainly there were a lot of criticisms at the time that uh, then Pallinghurst Resources Limited, which was buying out the balance of the stake in Gemfields PLC that it did not already own, was doing some sort of cheeky transaction and trying to buy up the rest of Gemfields on the cheap. In reality, what actually happened was that Pallinghurst and two of its other co-investors had set up funds with 10-year lifetimes. And those 10-year lifetimes reached the end in 2017, meaning that decisions had to be made as to what was going to happen with those stakes. And keeping a very complicated and long-winded story pretty short, the three co-investors effectively agreed to exchange their shares in Gemfields PLC for new shares in the company called Pallinghurst Resources Limited at that time. That triggers automatically under the UK uh, uh, AIM rules, under Rule 9, an offer for the rest of the shareholders. And that offer was obviously duly made. But the only offer that was on the table in reality was an offer for shares or paper in Pallinghurst Resources Limited, denominated in RAND, listed in Johannesburg, and that obviously did not sit very well with many UK investors, which is perfectly understandable. And I do think that the developments on the 14th of February 2020, with the listing of essentially the same basket of assets back on the A market, is a step in the right direction for many of those investors, because they are are now able, instead of holding RAND-denominated paper listed on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange, they are able to hold sterling-denominated paper back on AIM, where hopefully we will enjoy significantly improved uh, liquidity. I should also add that I do think the management team that... Uh, was in place prior to 2017 were exceptional and did a remarkable job on many, many fronts. Uh, I, I should declare a slight conflict of interest because I have been involved with the development of Gemfields and these projects since 2007, and therefore anything that's gotten wrong ultimately also rests on my head. But the team that was with us before 2017 and has now moved on, I really think they do a phenomenal job. So, uh, and they took the revenues of the group from zero point eight million dollars in 
the financial year ending 2009 to practically uh, 180, 190 million dollars, which is which is phenomenal growth. Sure, um, and I think you know if. Imagine if we're starting afresh. Um, investors are seeing a company that has had fairly stable revenue over the past few years. Um, I think the most recent accounts are the um, first half of 2019, yep. um, I think. Um, and, I mean, for that period, at least, revenue has been fairly stable. Um, I think cash profits were, were a little bit down in that period um, compared to the year before. But um, what what will change... Um, this year, I mean, what is is the pitch any any different to to what it was for Gemfield's shareholders two years ago, three years ago? Um, is there anything new that you're putting on the table now? Yes, there are some fundamental changes that occurred in the sort of 2017 watershed, which was the restructuring of the various Palingos co-investor funds. Uh, the most significant change, I think, is that the, uh, Gemfield's as a group gave up and walked away from its international ambitions of trying to do everything with colored gemstones on every continent and practically of every color. And so we uh, walked away from the Colombian opportunity where we had at that time signed a transaction to acquire a stake in the Cosquiz Emerald Mine, which today is owned by Fura Gems, a Canadian listed company. And we also walked away from the attempts to get into Sri Lanka and which was a sapphire opportunity and we decided to focus on Africa only and also specifically on what we refer to as the big three the emeralds rubies and the sapphires so in short today when you look at gem fields and unless it's red green or blue shiny comes from Africa or helps promote that vision we're really not interested and so that's that's the most critical difference the second thing that changed in 2017 was we uh, wanted to reduce the amount of debt that the group had taken on very dramatically. At that time, uh, the group's peak gross debt stood at about 90 million US dollars, which was a pretty heavy burden. Uh, today, in but based on the publicly available information, our gross debt cycles between $30 million and $50 million, depending on what we're drawing down, because our revenue streams are fairly chunky, given that we only have four emerald auctions a year, typically, and only two ruby auctions a year. So uh, we became much more debt-averse, and uh, we've we've trimmed our marketing costs just a little bit, and we try as much as possible to focus on the operations that we presently have in hand, because the operational efficiencies on operations of those scales and with that complexity, uh, putting in the, the love and care into those assets certainly does does reap benefits. And we suffer from the complications that, unlike traditional mining, where, let's take copper, gold, perhaps iron ore, where your grade is relatively consistent, we suffer from a double whammy. The first is that our grade is highly volatile. The deposits are fairly pockety in nature, 
And the second bit is that the quality of the crystals that grow is also very volatile. So sometimes you might get very low grade but beautiful quality. Sometimes you might get very high grade but terrible quality. But when we start shaking in the knees is when we get both bad grade and also poor quality crystals. So it, it just is a it's a riskier form of mining. And the way that we ameliorate that risk is by trying to have multiple production points open at the same time. So there's a little bit of portfolio theory. If one of your pistons isn't working, hopefully one of the others will uh, deliver. And then obviously with scale. So one of the things that held back the development of, of this industry for many years was that it was very small scale. And people would get a bucket full of gems, pour that into the greater industry engine. The engine would splutter into life, run for a few minutes, and then run out of fuel until somebody else found some more fuel in a deposit somewhere. And so by scaling up really dramatically the operation, we've been able to put much more consistent supply into the industrial engine for colored gemstones and that has very clearly uh, reaped benefits I think for everybody involved in the supply chain over the last decade. The Kajum Emerald Mine is a case in point where the amount of production has increased uh, three or four fold so we've gone from approximately 10 million carats in total to 30 to 40 million carats depending on the year so three or four fold increase and our revenues during that time have moved from uh, 8 million to 80 million so they've improved tenfold and so by implication what that says is that you can actually increase the supply and increase prices, which is totally counterintuitive to most people's thinking. But the reason for that is that the traditional laws of supply and demand, if you go back to the, the finance textbooks, only apply in an efficient market. So there are definitions of what constitutes an efficient market, and if you have an efficient market, there are rules of supply and demand. However, uh, having spent a little bit more than a decade in this business, uh, I can tell you with some degree of certainty it is not an efficient market, and therefore uh, it has been possible to increase the supply, make it consistent, professional, reliable, and you build an entire pipeline that over time will become more and more efficient. But as people get involved in that, obviously the pricing that we've been able to deliver and therefore the revenue increases always with a little bit of luck uh, has been going in the right direction and hopefully will continue to do so um, and on that demand point we at Invested Chronicle look a lot at um, the diamond miners um, like everyone does they haven't had a good year and coming into that now we, we saw some recovery in the last quarter of 2019 but it seems like with Hong Kong, with coronavirus, with various headwinds uh, that we could probably come up with a longer list, but, you know, let's not. Why would I buy into a jewellery company at this point in time? Certainly the diamond sector does does seem to have encountered something of a perfect storm, and it kind of reminds me of the expression, uh, relax, they said, it could be worse. And so I relaxed. And it got worse. So I think everybody in the industry, particularly the guys in the diamond sector, 
do need to keep their wits about them. And as you've outlined, there are a whole host of different difficulties from the Nirav Modi scandal through to Indian demonetization, a lack of liquidity, property price difficulties. And uh, sometimes there are uh, ESG-related concerns, environmental concerns. But perhaps the one that is biggest on the tips of the tongues of most people who are observing the diamond business is the seemingly increasingly popularity of lab-grown diamonds. And there obviously are a large number of companies now that that grow lab-grown diamonds and try and sell them on the basis that that's the best way forward. You don't have to dig up any dirt. You don't have to get people's hands dirty. There are no explosive. You're not going to cut down any trees, and, and that's a better way to go forward. To that, I would say two things. Number one, that would create catastrophes amongst the local communities, particularly in Africa, who rely very heavily on the benefits of these natural resources in terms of employment, education, the assorted community projects that the mining companies do carry out. And uh, yeah, I think it would be very, very sad if people were unable to benefit from their natural resources in country. However, I'm pretty comfortable that's not going to happen anyway. And that brings me to the second point, which is that the lab-grown diamonds inevitably are going to get bigger and bigger and cheaper and cheaper (laughs) to the point where they become very inexpensive, very large, and essentially a totally different category of something that people can purchase. And interestingly, this is in many respects a case of history repeating itself because lab-grown emeralds and lab-grown rubies have been around for a very long time. In fact, in rubies, there was a, a French scientist come chemist called Auguste Verneuil, who in the late 19th century, so we're talking 1880-1885, came up with the process for growing lab-grown rubies. And he, he kept it secret for some years that he'd made this discovery, but in the meantime was actually producing the rubies and filtering them into the market. And even if you get onto Google and you look for Geneva rubies, you will find references to what happened in the late 19th century. The immediate impact, of course, was to kill the ruby, the market for natural rubies. Sure. And I think by 1903 or 1904, they were producing something like three or three and a half tons of lab-grown rubies, and the industry was a total disaster. However, along came better understanding of what was happening, uh, better consumer perception of what was cooking, so to speak, pardon the pun, and, of course, the laboratories, the gem laboratories, were then able to start telling the difference between a natural ruby and a lab-grown ruby. And very quickly, you get two-tier pricing. And of course, today, based on the figures I quoted earlier on, you can very clearly see that a natural ruby contains the value and a lab-grown ruby, in fact, your listeners might find it amusing. But lab-grown rubies are so cheap now that every morning when we start up the processing plant at the Montepoise Ruby Mine in northern Mozambique, we take a handful of cubic-cut lab-grown rubies and we dump them in the top of the crusher just to test that the whole system is working correctly and, and, and is appropriately calibrated. And you, you can literally buy them for 
uh, one cent on the dollar. So my message to, to people in the, in the diamond sector would be, from our perspective, based on what we've seen in coloured gemstones, I wouldn't worry so much about the lab-grown diamonds. History has already demonstrated what happens in these circumstances. And I would say that the two markets are fundamentally different. For, for one thing, as I said earlier, the diamond market is actually a very efficient market, whereas the colored gemstone business is very inefficient and in some respects is lagging way behind in terms of its economic development. And that's basically where we see uh, tremendous potential. And there are obviously a lot of uh, the lab-grown diamond businesses who are encouraging people, for example, in an engagement scenario to purchase a lab-grown diamond rather than purchasing one that's been made by planet Earth. And you know, to, to people who are contemplating that, I would urge them to stop for a moment and just think about the following. If that lab-grown diamond is going to get cheaper and cheaper over time, would you really want to put two, three, four, five, six months salary into that right now? Or would you prefer to put it into either a natural diamond or, if I speak my book for a moment, a beautiful natural red Mozambican ruby? Sure. Although if, if diamonds held their value properly, then it might be a you know, more pressing concern. Yes. Know. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, the other interesting thing we did uh, some months ago was we plotted a graph of the performance of three of the key stock indices, two in the States and obviously the UK's FTSE. And we plotted that from six months before the financial crisis. And we plotted it alongside the GemVal index, which is created by a company called GemVal, which is a portfolio of about 27 different gemstones, just to look at the performance of the various indices, all rebased to one five or six months before the financial crisis. And it was really amazing to see that the the stock exchange indices dropped by 40 to 50% during that period. The GemVal index uh, came down by about 2 or 3% during that period. And then for many years, it outpaced the growth of the stock exchange indices. And about uh, about three years ago, the two American indices surpassed the GemVal index, but the FTSE is still lagging. And it's interesting in a world where we have negative, negative interest rates and quite a bit of financial uncertainty, maybe a degree of, of uh, mistrust in certain banking arrangements, uh, fat finger mistakes that wipe out pensions because somebody hit the wrong button, that uh, there are a number of articles appearing online now about companies who specialize in setting up vault arrangements or safety deposit boxes. And apparently for those companies, business is booming because people want the ability to walk down and have something tangible and potentially portable that they can put away and essentially control themselves rather than having it uh, sitting out in the cloud. Interesting observation, particularly when it comes to emeralds, rubies and sapphires. Sure. And just to remind listeners that we're sitting surrounded by stones and jewellery, part of Gemfields is, is Fabergé, a story company that many people would know from their, their famous eggs, um, which you've seen George Clooney steal, I'm sure. And Fabergé, I think looking through the books for the last few years, has, has not been a moneymaker for Gemfields. Um, it's selling from, from a stall in Harrods, like you can, you can buy it here, but is the plan to keep Fabergé as part of the company and to keep, keep selling its, its wares? 
Yes, absolutely. We are the very proud and privileged owners of the legendary Fabergé brand. You know, there are very few brands that contain as much history, heritage, legacy, and legend. And it's one of the greatest names that still sits outside of the very big luxury groups. And we are committed to our vision for Fabergé. And I do think that Fabergé has played a fundamental role in the positioning and the perception of emeralds, rubies, and sapphires in the mind of the consumer, especially when we started on this journey a little more than a decade ago. Emeralds, rubies, and sapphires were playing second fiddle to diamonds. Today, that is absolutely no longer the case. Now, I'm not giving Fabergé single-handed credit for that, but it certainly helped. And we saw that directly with some of our auction customers who could see that Fabergé is a wonderful name, had started pushing emeralds, rubies, and sapphires. So yes, we very much remain committed to the vision for Fabergé. And we do believe that if we stick to that vision, we will over time, and it has certainly taken us a lot longer and rather more capital than we had originally envisaged, be in a position to hopefully deliver significant value for our shareholders. Um, and specifically, how, how do you plan to return it to, to profitability? So in 2017, to come back to uh, that watershed moment, we also changed the approach that we took with Fabergé, which was from one that was about pursuing revenue growth to one that was about reducing the cash requirement posed by Fabergé on the Gemfields Group. And based on the information that we've put into the public domain, because we do try and be as transparent as we can, uh, the cash consumption, annual cash consumption of Fabergé has declined from a staggering $23.5 million a year back in 2015 to the situation today where the annual cash requirement is about $4.5 million per annum. Now, $4.5 million per annum is still a very significant amount of money, and uh, our team continue on the journey, we hope within the next two or two and a half years, of reducing that $4.5 million cash requirement down to nil and then continuing the journey such that Fabergé hopefully becomes a contributor to the wider group rather than one that's uh, uh, costing us funds. What that does mean, Alex, is that obviously we're not going to be putting huge amounts of group cash into either opening up retail operations or indeed uh, into uh, stocking up with inventory or anything along those lines. This is about slow, steady growth, both in revenues containing the costs, which have come down very dramatically. The, the overall operating costs of Fabergé at one point were just north of $18 million a year. Today, those stand at just below $10 million per annum, so significant progress has been made. And uh, we remain very excited that it's part of our group and do believe that if we continue that journey, uh, it will ultimately come to represent a lot of value for our shareholders. And I think one thing you mentioned before, jewelry demand and the, the dye market. I won't get you on diamonds again because it's not your business. <laughs> but um, have emerald and, and ruby prices, I think there's been a slight decline, but, but what, what level are they on now compared to a year ago, for example? So looking at both, both emerald and ruby prices in the rough form and also the cut and polished form, those are very robust and we've, we have seen them consistently increase. 
the world record prices for emeralds and rubies, as mentioned earlier, have now, in the last 10 years, surpassed the world record prices for white diamonds. And obviously, we have a very good grasp of the rough prices based on the auction results of our own emerald and ruby prices. And yeah, they remain robust, healthy, and uh, touch wood, uh, that will continue to be the case. So we, we don't at the moment have any reason to believe that anything fundamental is going to change. So it really becomes about sort of tail risk and or big events that we may not necessarily be able to predict. Things like the coronavirus, which it's clearly too early to tell. I'm certainly no expert, but it certainly doesn't look like that's going to have any particular impact on on emerald, ruby and sapphire prices. On the contrary, if history teaches us anything, uh, it is that in times of enhanced uncertainty, people prefer to have something of value that is portable, that's going to maintain its value if it's been well purchased. And uh, that certainly helped emerald rubies and sapphires in times of uncertainty. Sure. And I think one thing to touch on is there was a, a governance change you made before coming coming back to AIM. Your father stepped down as as chairman. Are there any other any other changes you've had to make to the company to to get that that listing um, back? As you can imagine, the any listing process, and we've obviously been in, involved in a couple over the years, is an incredible workload involves a lot of paperwork a lot of forms a lot of declarations and so I'm just sort of scanning my mind in real time here to think of whether or not there was anything else that was significant or as high profile um, as the stepping down of my father in order to make sure that we had robust corporate governance and didn't have a situation where uh, the chairman was my father and I obviously occupied the the CEO-ship. Um, and I don't think, Alex, there was anything else that we've really had to fundamentally change. Obviously, one has to look at the corporate governance standards where we comply presently and will continue to do so with the the King Code, which applies to the Johannesburg Stock Exchange, and that will be our principal code for corporate governance going forward. Um, but that's that's clearly the highest profile and probably the most significant uh, of the impact. So I, I don't off the top of my head recall anything else, fortunately. I think the other thing that's, that's probably worth touching on briefly, Alex, is the increasing talk a couple of years ago about uh, resource nationalism, particularly in Africa, which to some extent got a bunch of lip service, got its moment in the press and media, and somehow by 2020 is not discussed quite as much and seems to have been one of those news stories that you read about for a little while and then disappeared. But I do think that what's unusual about Jim Fields' approach in the last 10 years is the level of transparency that has been brought to this business. And so all of our figures are published and available for people to have a look at. And we did, in our sector, I believe, pioneer two things. The first was that we work closely with the host governments who seal and inspect the gemstones before they leave either Mozambique or Zambia and they will then travel to wherever it is that we're hosting the auctions they will meet the bags and they will check the seal numbers to make sure that nobody's tampered with it and the government representatives will sit with us throughout the auction monitoring the entire auction process 
and in fact they see the prices that we receive at the same time. That was the first pioneering bit, unheard of transparency, and it's very important with an emotive subject like resource nationalism. And what I can tell you is that the amount of emotion surrounding gemstones is an order of magnitude higher than it is for things like iron ore and copper. The second thing that we pioneered was that uh, when at auction the invoices are issued to the customers, those invoices are issued directly by the mining company in Zambia or Mozambique. And that means that 100% of the international prices flows directly back into the local company in Zambia or Mozambique. Nothing goes via Liechtenstein, the Cayman Islands, Switzerland, or, or any of the, um, uh, the other well-known tax havens. And that's also meant that I believe for the first time host nations have seen a remarkable share of their coloured gemstone resource value remain in country and also get paid in the form of uh, taxation. Sure, and we've seen Zambia come down hard on Vedanta and, and Glencore in recent months. Yeah, it, it, indeed we have, and uh, you know Zambia is uh, always been an interesting country for us. Now that we've been operating there for more than than ten years, uh, we have seen a reasonable number of changes in the permanent secretaries in the Ministry of Mines. Ditto in some cases, also the ministers. Uh, for the most part, I have to say that we've had the pleasure of working with many wonderful uh, people and technocrats. Uh, sometimes, obviously, one does encounter as is the case in any society or country, some nefarious elements who kind of spoil the, the barrel for a lot of other people and, and can get in the way. But for the most part, we've had a, a wonderful partnership with the Zambian government who own 25% of Kajum. And I guess we're one of the, the rare pieces of, of good news coming out of Zambia at the moment in that last year we obviously suffered heavily from a 15% export duty that the government introduced on 1 January 2019. And it took a great deal of lobbying, a lot of submissions of models and documents over the course of a year in order to basically have that uh, suspended. And so with effect from 1 January 2020, that 15% export tax no longer exists. But it is a demonstration that if you sit down and you talk to government, you have to speak to a wide audience of people, provide all the documents, sometimes explain, 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 uh, demonstrate what the impact's going to be. The government does listen and they can take corrective action. The second interesting bit was we've just had the the Cardrum Emerald Mines license renewed for a further 25 years, so that system is working as it should. And thirdly, we're in the process of consolidating some wholly owned Gemfields licenses into Cardrum Mining Limited in order to give the government effectively a 25% stake in the broader emerald sector rather than just in a single license. And the first three of those licenses have now also been approved uh, by government. So I think we're, um, we're thanks to our partners in government, uh, one of the, the healthiest stories in, in Zambian mining at the moment. Great. We'll leave it there, Sean. Thank you very much for, for being on the podcast and um, good luck with the listing. Thank you for your interest and enthusiasm, Alex. At Airbus, we're at the forefront of new technology. We're redefining the aerospace industry by using disruptive technologies and new energies to reduce our environmental impact. Okay, thank you very much. We're bringing the world together, collaborating, and acting on climate change. At Airbus, we're pioneering sustainable aerospace for a safe and united world. 
Learn more at Airbus.com.